Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Joining me in center ring today is Wendy Tamis Robbins. Wendy is an attorney at the firm of Holland and Knight in Boston. She's a best-selling author of the book, The Box, Freedom from Anxiety, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the most part today. She's an anxiety coach and a wellness speaker. Wendy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Wendy, the book is phenomenal. I absolutely loved it. It is prose. It could be a story about somebody else. It's an autobiography, but it could be fiction. I just cannot tell you how much I enjoyed reading it. And, and so thank you for being here and thank you for writing this beautiful, beautiful piece. Thank you so much. That means so much to me, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you put things into the world and you just never know. But I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for putting this into the world because this is going to be enormously helpful. Before we get into the parts of this book that have to do with divorce, would you just explain to us the concept for the box and a little bit of your history with anxiety? Sure. So I grew up in a volatile household, as a lot of people do, mainly because of my mother's own untreated mental health issues, which were mainly because of her mother's untreated mental health issues, you know, the generational cycles of of mental health and mental illness. So in that volatility, I, um, I was lacking a sense of safety and security. And so I had my first panic attack uh, when I was just six years old. And it was right after my parents had bought a new refrigerator. And so they put the big box, the cardboard box that the refrigerator comes in, in the living room for the kids to play in. And I was the only one who took the bait. And I would go in there and... Um, not so much play, but I felt really safe in there because I thought only me and God could fit. And so I would find refuge in this box and I could hear, you know, the yelling and the dishes breaking and things like that, the chaos outside of the box. And so I would hide in there. And then ultimately that box was thrown away when we moved to a new town and I, when the physical box left, I create, I started creating a mental construct of a box in my mind, a safe place where I could retreat to. And as my anxiety grew, the walls of those box, that box grew, they became thicker and they became taller. And I just started really isolating myself from things, anything that felt like it would trigger my, my anxiety. So my anxiety continued through my younger years, I had started having intrusive thoughts that were really disturbing and things that I just didn't have the vocabulary at the time to talk about and became a perfectionist and a people pleaser. And all of those things really benefited me externally. And I did really well in school and sports and got a, um, a scholarship to an Ivy League college and went on to law school. But throughout as I was running to find external validation that would reduce my anxiety, it really only exacerbated it. So until I got married. And that's, where we're, did, 
Right, which is the jumping off point for our conversation. Before I start, this is a question, maybe a silly question, but how long did that box stay in the living room? (laughs) I would say um, maybe two months. Wow. What a great toy for a kid to play with. Mm -hmm. And what a great place for you to feel safe in for two months. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. I'd like one now, actually. Maybe I should just... (laughs) You know what? I have to tell you something. My background is in media and entertainment. And when people do voiceovers from their homes, because home studios uh, started becoming a thing years ago, and I had a little one, you go in a closet because that's where the the, the warmest sound is Mm -hmm. for to convert to, to audio, it feels so great to be in that little dark space. Mm-hmm. It's like the womb, I think. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just very comforting. Yeah. It really is. And in this day of, we have no boundaries. Social media has taken every boundary away. Google, you can see where people's houses are on mm-hmm. a map. How threatening is that? Yeah. It doesn't feel like we have cover anymore. Mm -hmm. So I guess the cover is A, ourselves, and B, we do need a place to go that is quadrant off from the world just to breathe again, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. And if you can't find a physical space, it becomes a mental space. And I think that was part of my journey was really finding that space within me, which is extremely difficult when everything inside of you is so anxious and constantly in a, in a panic mode, you know, that's the last place you want to go. So yeah, that's where I really cultivated my, my new safe space was in meditation and, um, you know, some other, you know, therapies that I used. How about goat yoga? Have you ever heard of goat yoga? No. Oh, yeah. Goat yoga. I thought you said Yoko Ono because I'm watching that Beatles documentary. Oh, my God. On Netflix with John. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Goat yoga. I took a goat yoga class after seeing it on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Didn't originate here. Originated, I think, in Massachusetts or Vermont. Mm. But that was really fun. And, And just as a last point, For those who really don't know what anxiety feels like and looks like, could you please describe that? Ooh, that, we only have an hour. Um, So there are a few different types of anxiety that I've experienced because it likes to, it's, it's got a mind of its own. So if you get comfortable with one way, it will find another way to come in and sort of terrify you in, you know, new and exciting ways. So for me, I guess the easiest way to describe it would be that there's, there was mental anxiety, a generalized anxiety that could come up in, I had social anxiety, I had health anxiety. So it can, it can manifest in in a lot of different ways. And some people only have one, but how that feels, the mental side of it is like a fog settles in, like you're disassociated from what's going on around you because it's a sense of overwhelm and it's a way for the brain really to, um, to protect itself. So it's like you're looking through a, a foggy lens and that's 
that's what settles in after those initial feelings of I'm really anxious. Like I, I don't think I can take one more thing. I don't think I can do this one more day. Almost like a physical, like you're going to be sick or something like that. Like how many, like when you're going to be sick, you know, when you're like, I have 30 seconds, maybe 20, like this is coming. I feel that way around, you know, those breaks that you start to feel are coming. Like I have like 24 hours here and I'm not quite sure how this is going to go. You know, that feeling of your brain just being um, just totally overwhelmed. And sometimes it's not with actual tasks. You can't, you can't always put your finger on it. And then there's the physical side, the panic attacks that the two feed off of each other. And I used to like the panic attacks when I was in the midst of the mental despair because that had a beginning, a middle and an end. And yes, I thought I was going to die. But when it was over, I was exhilarated in a way. Like I survived and I at least felt something. It wasn't just the numbness of the, of the anxiety that, you know, um, just made me feel, yeah, numb. Like there was nothing there, no happiness, no sadness, no nothing. And so the panic attacks would come though in certain anxious situations when I was triggered in public or when I felt a sensation in my body that I catastrophized or and it's like a warm rush of terror. That's, it's sort of like this warmth that washes over you that you think is going to be comforting. And then suddenly you're terrified and you don't know why. And all of the hairs on your body just stand up and you're in this space and you can't really figure out because there's no lion, you know, there's no threat. It's just there. The threat is inside. The threat is conjured from inside of your head and would I've had two panic attacks, and they were kind of the same. Um, I'm ho- I'm hoping I never have a third one, but I'm also hoping if I do, I will recognize it as a panic attack. I called the paramedics in both cases. Mm. My heart was racing. I felt like I was going to faint. No real issue happened. Um, you feel like your heart is beating. I felt like my heart was beating out of my chest. But when the paramedics came, they said, it's really not that bad. Your blood pressure is high, but it's not that bad. But I felt like, oh my God, I need medical treatment. What are you telling me? It's not that bad. But just somebody saying that to me externally, it's not that bad. Okay. I could breathe for a minute. Okay. I'll trust you. It's not that bad. Thank you for taking my vital signs. And now I'll rest for a minute. Did, is that something like you physically experienced? Oh, yeah. Uh, like I would have, at the worst, I would have three or four or five a day. <gasps> but everything, everything triggered another one and another one and another oh one. I was God. in a constant, constant cycle. And I, I just said recently, my husband was suggesting that we may take, that he wanted to take in um, a foreign exchange student while my stepkids are in high school and what a great experience. And I, I said, absolutely not. Like I'm not letting a stranger live in my home. But if you ask me if like paramedics, complete strangers could live in my, uh, my guest bedroom, I would invite them in a heartbeat. Like my entire life, all I've ever looked for is the urgent care sign on the side of the road. <laughs> like some people it's a bathroom, right? Like, oh, where's the next bathroom? And mine's just urgent care. I just want to know where the people are with the stethoscopes and just keep telling me that my vital signs are okay. I mean, that was like 40 years of my life. My God, that's funny, but it's not funny. I, I, yeah. 
hypervigilance. No, I mean, we all, we all have what we want is our emergency go-to something or others, but your urgent care, yes, I can appreciate that. I can. <laughs> okay, so for those of you who have never been able to define a panic attack or define anxiety, at least you have an idea now whether you have experienced it or not. Now I'm going to go to the book. There are four chapters in this book that specifically deal with divorce. And what I'm going to do is go through the highlighted passages. I'm going to read them. They're so well written. And then, Wendy, I would like you to explain them. I'm going to start with chapter 20, which is the first chapter in the book that specifically deals with divorce. And the title of that chapter is A Failure Worth Fighting For. Before I even start, <laughs> the failure is the divorce. The, the failure is the marriage. What people will think is a failed marriage. Yeah. And you, at this point, still wanted to fight for the marriage in this chapter when you started? I did. Yes, okay. I, did. I did. Okay. Okay. You, you open with a quote from Joseph Campbell, which I really loved. So I'm going to read that because when people open with quotes, they're really indicative of what's going to be discussed in the chapter. Mm -hmm. And the quote is, we must be willing to let go of the life we've planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. And that's one of the biggest issues in a divorce, changing from a marriage to a single life, changing jobs, changing cities. Big changes in our life are so fearful because we really are not guaranteed what's on the other side. Generally, if the decisions come from the heart, I have found, and we follow our gut, they are the right decisions. And you really You'll be okay having faith on what's the other side. What's on the other side? How do you feel about that? I totally agree because all of the decisions I had made up until that point were with my head. They were what looked good on paper. What I thought my parents would think was what I should have done. How everyone would perceive me. What I thought a perfect life looked like, and I wasn't listening to my heart at all. Um, so, and to your point, I felt like thinking, even considering leaving that marriage, it was like walking into a dark tunnel with no light at the end. I had no idea what that journey was going to look like. You know, there's just no, you're not, um, I, I don't even, there, it was just a terrifying step. It was a very, um, and I can see why a lot of people would just consider, just keep justifying it with what's going on in their head rather than taking that leap of faith. And to use your example of a few minutes ago, the tunnel, when we're in a dark tunnel, at least for the first time on a road trip, we really don't know when the tunnel's going to end and, mm -hmm. and light is going to come out on the other side. We just assume we are going to come out on the other side. Right. So I, I like the visual of the tunnel. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read now. This is so fascinating. Listen. What made the morning of November 14th stand out was the kiss. It was not the typical goodbye kiss he gave me every morning. 
This was a long, deep kiss, mouths wide open, tongues exploring each other slowly, his hand holding the back of my head, my knees buckled. If you kiss me like that every day, we'll be fine, I said, part plea, part threat. The kiss was unexpected and out of character. It was an act of desperation. Our marriage wasn't working. It had been four years, but we only knew each other for five. When we fell in love, there were parts of each of us that the other had yet to discover. Extremely important in relationships, that's me. As these secrets found their way into the light, they took their toll on the relationship. I didn't know exactly how a marriage should work, given this was my first, but something was broken. He became emotionally unavailable and disinterested in intimacy. When pressed, he blamed it on my anxiety, but otherwise declared that everything was fine from his perspective, his face expressionless. I wouldn't know the real reason for his distance until it was too late. Can you tell us what the reason was? This is so, first of all, this is so perfect because people confuse sex with love. And if you are having a bad time of it and all of a sudden you have an intimate moment, then people look at that as, okay, there's hope. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you did that as well. Sure. Looking for um, some sign of life. Rather than walking around like robots, not even interacting with each other, you know, just living in this facade, like everything's okay. And I think we were barely even talking at the time. So what was it, Wendy, that real reason for his distance? Well, I, I, I can't share the exact reason. It was a, um, it was a. Oh, would I call it a lie? Well, sure. It came out as a lie, but it was something that he was not completely truthful about with me from the very start of our relationship. And it was something important enough that um, it really destroyed that foundation of trust once I found out about it. And honestly, if it had been shared up front, it would not have been a big deal. I would not have left. It would have sort of been like a little blip. But because of his fear around not having shared it and sort of, you know, one lie compounds to another, compounds to another, until he felt like, I'm, I'm imagining that it was like a house of cards at that point. And so we couldn't continue to move on and build a family without this coming out. And so he started putting the brakes on because he didn't know how all of that was going to play out. And yeah, so it it was sad to me once I found out, um, it was just really unfortunate. And I don't know how it would have changed the trajectory of the relationship, but um, that was a big part of why it ultimately, why I, why I couldn't save it. Um, and that is so important what you said. We all have our silent secret selves. So Car- the character of Carrie Bradshaw on Sex in the City, there was an episode where she talked about everybody has their silent secret selves. And I think we have that to protect ourselves. But what I find fascinating in relationships is 
we feel that our silent secret self is worse than anything our partner could have, or we think we're the only one in the relationship that has a secret or a silent secret self that we find hard to express, when in fact, I think everybody does. Mm. Well, one of the things that really, really upset me and was a huge break for me was that before we actually married, I exposed everything to him that I possibly could, you know, with the skills that I had at the time. He had seen my anxiety. He saw the massive amounts of debt that I was in from my student loans. So I I had, you know, those are, those are my two biggies, I think, at the time that somebody should know about getting into a marriage. And so I felt like I had put my cards on the table and I remembered those conversations very clearly. And he didn't meet me there. When I found out about the other things, those conversations were the first flash of a memory that I had. Like, well, where were you when I was reaching out my hand? Like you didn't reach yours out and meet me there. And so that was just this huge disconnect for me and really like um, a betrayal. Understood. Understood. Okay, going on. Over the last year, I shifted my focus to having children, hoping to find something to bond over, but found myself reminding him regularly that in order to conceive a, chi- conceive a child, we would actually need to be intimate. His, I smiled when I read that. <laughs> um, or, oh, I'm sorry, we would actually need to have intercourse. So I want to use your exact <laughs> words. <laughs> Uh, Yes, I guess that that would if you're not going to adopt. My Mm. indifference seeded resentment that over time became misery and fear. My interest, and this is, I want to talk about this, my interest in having a child then shifted from something to bond over to something to bond with, something to love that would respond and love me back. And as a result, my interest in him proportionally diminished. Was this it? We were sitting in a new home on a new couch with a sweet dog and absolutely nothing to say to one another. My box had never looked more perfect and it disguised the discontent building inside. So two things on this I'd like to explore with you. And because you have a world of, you're a world different now. It is common for people to think that if they're having a difficult relationship, having children will bring them together. And it never happens. Mm-hmm. In a good relationship, children will test the relationship because it's so difficult. And I, I just heard, I, you're a stepmom, right? Didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you can speak to that because mom is mom, birth or step, you still have obligations and responsibilities and you interface with kids. So thinking of having children to make a relationship better for everybody listening is dangerous. And then when you when we look at other relationships, so this is a two-party, when we look at other relationships, we define whether somebody has a perfect marriage by the window dressing. Mm-hmm. If we don't see them fight, if we see, oh, look, they're doing well financially, everybody, everything looks in order. 
but we just don't know what goes on behind closed doors and that comparison is dangerous. And you brought up the concept of you're in this new box. So could you please address having children as a bonding mechanism and what you both thought you were showing the world as the perfect marriage or as a solid marriage? Yeah, sure. Um, So the children part, we, because we didn't have anything to talk about and we weren't bonding over anything, I thought that that was the obvious next step. And it would give us a common goal, conversations. um, it, It would just be a bonding experience that we didn't otherwise have. Did I think that that and, and you know, I also said out loud at times, well, at least if this marriage doesn't work, I'll get something out of it. I'll have a child. You know, I thought that that could be, um, it, you know, at least it wasn't just a complete waste of time. I guess that was my, like, I've burdened both of us for four years here. And that re- Wendy, that really makes sense. Yeah. But then now looking at, being in a marriage where there is a divorce and there's two children and there's other divorces on the other side. And there, you know, there's this very complex web of family um, and seeing how I, I didn't appreciate being tied to somebody for the rest of your life because you share a child. I did not appreciate that at all at that time. So um, it wasn't until I voiced to my sister that I was unhappy um, and in the same breath said, I'm trying to have a child that she said, maybe now's the time to stop trying. Like, what are you, you know, what, what are you doing? And so to hear it from somebody else, it kind of started to ring true for me. Um, and then what we were presenting to the outside world, there was very much um, a sense of this facade that, and it wasn't just me and my perfectionism around hiding my anxiety I think there was plenty of it on his side as well, trying to um, present this picture of um, just being that perfect couple and being in the perfect places and um, being able to afford things that perhaps we really couldn't and always just being a little bit more than authentic. Yes, yes. And, and, and there you created another box. I like that mm-hmm. you brought that in at that point. Right, right. It, it just, that lack of authenticity, because the, out, the outside was becoming so much more different than my insides, that the more that, the more that chasm grew, the more miserable I became. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And while you were talking, I was thinking, and we all do that. We all create that box in which our marriage lives and that we present to the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, what else can we do? We do the best we can with what we have. And then when we decide that maybe the healthiest thing for us is to move on, people are shocked, (laughs) aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I right. Because perfect couple. 
Right, right. And he's such a great guy. And there's, and when you say there's nothing specifically wrong, that's even worse. That's not what people want to hear. <laughs> what are no. they going to write about? What are they going to talk about if there's nothing specific? No, right? You're, you're right. Because growing apart, which is the basis of moving on, is kind of natural. And especially in this day and age of we're all living longer because medical assistance is better. We, you know, we don't die in our 20s. We're not Romeo and Juliet, so we have to get married when we're 12. Um, more than likely, we're not going to be having 40 and 50-year 50 50 year marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, we might have lived out all the important parts of this marriage and this life. We've raised our children. We're proud we got them to college or we're proud they have families of their own and they're surviving. And what a great job we did, but we need something else, each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the longer we live, I, that's, that's more expected. And so there's this thing called gray marriages. I absolutely hate the term. Mm-hmm. But it's a term, and it's it's people in their 60s who have been married since their 20s, so you have like a 40-year marriage, oh. um, getting divorced. I personally love these people. Uh, give me every gray marriage known to mankind in my business because they're so easy to work with. I bet. They don't hate each other. Mm-hmm. Their hopes yeah. and dreams have not been dashed because they've lived them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in a new chapter. But it's interesting when you say people grow apart. We never grew together. You know, we fell in love for sure, but we never landed in love. Once that initial, you know, you're anesthetized when you're in love. And once the anesthesia wears off and you find yourself in a marriage and in a house with a dog staring at one another, what do you do? You, you know, we never even started that journey of growing together, really. It was just acquiring things. That's pretty much what we were doing. We were, you know, finding a house and finding a dog and trying to find friends and doing all of the things that it was almost like opening a dollhouse and putting a man and a woman in it and finding the dog and, fi- you know, like how I would create my little play spaces. But there was nothing underneath it. There wasn't this connection that is the relationship. And so we just never grew into that. Excellent point. So I have in my notes from our pre-interview, and you answered it, falling in love versus landing in love. And so I'm really happy that you brought that up. You knew each other for a year before you got married. And that's sometimes, you know, a year is, seems to be enough time for, or seems to be the agreed upon time to get married in in our fast paced lives. But I don't think you can ever really know anybody until you've gone through some serious situations together and who knows when they're going to show up Mm -hmm. that's a great point who knows when they're going to show up and what does that mean when they are really going to show up and expose their insides to you right like crack themselves open and really be vulnerable when is that going to happen i i kept looking at my watch like when is it (laughs) 
how many years do we have here? <laughs> so that's why I started to really um, kind of burn it to the ground. Like I, I was really trying to shake things up at the end there, like in therapy and saying things to, you know, you, you end up doing things to try and shock them. At least I did. Like, this is how I'm really feeling. Like, how are you really feeling? Like when I say these things to you and I just really didn't get anything back, but it's all fine. You are married a second time. Mm-hmm. And you, how many years have you been married? We've been together for 13 and we've been married for five. Wow. Okay. So um, we made it a while. You really did. You really did. And a lot of times when people are together without being married for quite a few years and then they get married, that box, that legal, um, that legal tie doesn't sit well with some people. Some people thrive without the legality of marriage. You, you seem to be doing okay. Five years married, eight years before that, knowing each other. Yeah, we, I don't think we really um, identify with the marriage part of it so much because we are, we're both divorced already. And I don't think we put that much weight on the label. I think it's cute when I write like wife, I'm like, oh, look at us. I'm, he's like my husband now. Isn't that cute? Like, it's almost like, I don't know, like dress up, but it was the bond and the relationship that was, we never went into it even thinking we needed to be married. It was just so automatic that we were just sort of meant to be together and to ride out this part of our lives together that there was just marriage wasn't really that it wasn't a big part of it. We really did it as a celebration when we felt like it. What was different in what is different in this relationship um, that hopefully um, mitigates some of the anxiety that you typically feel? Yeah, it really started with, I describe it as there are people in your life who fan the flames and there are people who help you carry the buckets of water to put them out. And it's not always intentional. I don't think my first husband intended to exacerbate my anxiety, nor did I have the skills to put up maybe the healthy boundaries that I needed. Or, you know, we were, I was, in, I was in a very different place when I met him versus meeting my current husband. But the relationship now is more that he got as vulnerable as I did up front, first of all, which meant a lot to me. And he knew the journey that I was on. He could see it and uh, appreciate it. And he didn't try to save me, nor did he try to dismiss it as I don't get it and it shouldn't really matter. And let's just push it under the rug or, or whatever your coping mechanisms are. He said, I'm going to be here with you as you save yourself. I'm going to be here loving you while you do that. Oh, wow. And I guess that's the easy, you know, the shortest answer I can give. There are so many other. He also represented everything that I could see that was on the outside of my own box at the time. I had been doing a lot of work leading up to meeting him and I wasn't there yet, but he sort of embodied everything I felt and wasn't able to fully step into and live yet, 
And I thought if I hitch myself to this wagon, you know, this is, I'm going to have a choice. Either I step into this life that I want to live, anxiety and all, which was a lot of my exposure therapy, or I can stay in this box forever. So it was a big part of, of seeing that life on the other side in a real way. Dr. Brene Brown, who I assume most people know, uh, and her studies and talks and books on vulnerability, vulnerability leads to authenticity. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that when we are authentic, when we, um, when we become vulnerable and expose ourselves to another person, as hard as it may be, it turns everything around because what we don't understand is the other person we're talking to is vulnerable in, in, in areas too. We all have those silent secret selves mm-hmm. that we protect and don't discuss because even if we don't have anxiety, that causes us fear. Oh my God, if they knew that I was afraid of swimming, if they knew if I was afraid of this or that they just wouldn't, they won't love me. I'll be unlovable. They won't want me. So I'm, I'm not going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, my current husband broke me open. He made me do the work in a way. I mean, he, I guess he invited me to do the work is a better way to say it. And I remember those conversations in the early years where I was just like hysterical because I, there was so much shame coming up in me before I could even find the words to express what I was feeling. Because he would say, tell me everything you're thinking right now. I don't care how crazy it sounds. I need to know and hear everything. And it was in a very loving way. Like we, like we can't connect the way we want to if you do not expose yourself. And it was... It was just an incredibly cathartic experience and created a connection and a deep ability to love and and receive love that I never knew was really even available to me. The opposite of that is what I'm going to read next. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He trivialized my fears and grew frustrated by my anxiety. By hiding parts of myself that he didn't understand or approve of, I felt unseen and silenced. He didn't love who I actually was, which in turn meant that I, as is, with anxiety, was unlovable. And the more I felt his love was conditional, the more I resented him for it. As a result, my marriage caused more anxiety because there was no way out no safe place to retreat. I should have just bought a refrigerator and gotten that box. Oh my God, that's so funny, Wendy. (laughs) Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) No, I think you're right. I'm sorry, honey. I'll be in the box for a while. (laughs) I think we should have adult physical boxes. I think that would be great. And that's very funny. Um, This one little sentence, regardless of the obvious and cliche admission of failure, the world would see in a divorce, because this is obviously what was coming next. This failure was one worth fighting for. And we're back to the title of this chapter for that. Mm -hmm. So 
When I write confirmation emails to people who are coming here to file for divorce, because I generally do that before I mediate for them, the last line in these confirmation emails is, divorce is a new beginning. Mm. I completely believe it. It doesn't feel like it when you're embarking on it. But if we look at everything that happens to us as a learning experience, as something helpful, and just say, what am I supposed to learn from this? I don't think there can be too many failures. What do you think? I agree with that um, wholeheartedly. My divorce was really the first time that I made a decision to live the life that I wanted to live. Um, that's why it was a failure worth fighting for. It was, I, I started to your point earlier to listen to my heart and my intuition and my authentic voice and really where that was leading me. And, and I also believe that some people, you know, he is a wonderful man. I, I have nothing bad to say about him. All of these things that sound negative here are about how he and I related at that moment in time. And there were gifts that I got from that relationship as well. But, you know, some people are only meant to be in your life for a short period of time. And you learn from every relationship you're in, whether it's the person checking you out at the supermarket or a parent, right? There's something to be, there's something of value that you could get from any human being, any interaction. So I just truly believed at the end that, um, it was in both of our best interests to move on and find uh, somebody who truly could be in a loving relationship. I'm so happy that you said that because sometimes our natural instinct as human beings to protect ourselves is to blame the other. It doesn't matter whether it's a personal relationship, a business, a family, a friend, it doesn't matter. Even a mishap at a store, we bought the wrong thing. Our tendency is to blame. And I'm so happy that you said he's a wonderful man. The issue is between us, not that there was something wrong with him as a person. Mm -hmm. None of us are perfect. But thank you. Because, yes, we, have, we all have our lessons. You know, we all come from different philosophical backgrounds. And, you know, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? All that good stuff. Um, the only way I've ever been able to make sense of life, because I think life is crazy at best, <laughs> is to say it is a learning lesson. And then framed with that concept, then everything can be for our best interest. Yeah, I heard this, I heard this yesterday. Um, somebody said, or maybe I said it based on what they said, I forget, but that life is a search and rescue mis mission. You're, because I, I feel like you, we abandon ourselves when we're young, when we start to understand that love is and looks and smells conditional, right? We want to start making everyone happy because we see the responses that we get. And this becomes this cycle, but we're abandoning, abandoning ourselves along the way. And so my life, and I've seen it in so many others and from the teachers that, you know, I've learned with, that it's really about unlearning all of that stuff around external validation and 
going on this journey to find yourself again and, you know, find that bond and create that self-love. And so, yeah, I like that framing of the search and rescue. I do too. A good uh, visual. For those people listening who maybe have not asked for the divorce yet, had the hard talk yet, still figuring out how to do it, pretty sure they want to do it, but still living in fear. I'm just going to pull a couple things from the next chapter. First of all, the opening quote, the the name, the title of the chapter is The Choice. (laughs) Stay or do you go? Mm-hmm. And the opening quote from Aeneas Nin is this. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And your response to this in um, the second page of this chapter is, fear of things that caused me anxiety was worse than fear of the anxiety itself. Talk about that in terms of in relation to the divorce, asking for the divorce, having the hard talk. So fear of things that caused me anxiety was worse than the anxiety itself? Worse than the fear of the anxiety itself. So did you fear anxiety coming on? So not only did you have anxiety, in between those anxious moments, did you fear the next one coming up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. that became the real downward spiral was when the the fear of it became more than the actual, like the constant anticipatory fear of more of it. And then actually seeing the structure around me, that marriage around me, like those walls closing in on me and understanding that that was perpetuating all of that anxiety. So that's why it started to feel like another box, another prison that, you know, it's just, it makes me hyperventilate even thinking about it. Like it really, I knew, and that's, I mean, and that's how anxiety for me now guides and informs me. Like the anxiety wasn't the worst part of it. The anxiety was showing me that, this relationship is the worst thing for you right now. You know, not necessarily the next panic attack. It, it, was, it was shining a light on what was not working in my life and wasn't going to be the best thing for me. And for those who are still, who are living in momentary fear um, to address the divorce, I will pull out another passage. Divorced at 35, What would people think? How would I convince them this was a success, not a failure? How would I redefine myself? What would I learn from this? Mm. How did you respond to that, to yourself, and then to those important people in your life that you were going to share your decision with? It honestly felt like the most courageous thing I had ever done in my life up until that point. And no one's um, opinion mattered anymore. It's sort of like when I wrote my book and I came out to my law firm about my anxiety and my decades of mental illness. And once I make that decision in my own mind, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter what 
what the responses are anymore because if if you get to the space internally that you know it's a, it's your lifeline like you have to do it you feel that so so strongly about it in your gut not in your head i could have stayed in my head based on what was on paper all day long but i i was literally suffocating under the weight of it so i knew that this was a lifeline and um i knew other people couldn't understand that and that but it didn't matter Perfect decisions are when nothing matters except to you. Those are Mm -hmm. your perfect decisions. And I'm so, I love that you said it was the most courageous thing I had done. And to feel like I was saving myself. I really did. I knew I was saving myself. And I also like that your current husband doesn't want to save you. Mm -hmm. Be there and witness you while you save yourself. I mean, that's freeing unto itself that you have that space to grow as you need to grow on your own, but there's the safety net all around you because when you look up, you're not going to be alone in this particular relationship. Right. And it's the beauty of non-attachment, which I, just the word gave me anxiety when I was younger. Um, I was like, well, if we're not attached, then why are we even in a relationship? Isn't that what a relationship is, right? And when somebody's trying to save you, there's such an attachment to that, um, which I would never want. And now, well, now knowing the beauty of non-attachment, you know, and so that's how we function in our relationship now, It's which is a far more healthy and beautiful way to dance your way through life. Yes. And in your own words, to finish this chapter, you said, the easy thing would have been to stay and have children and focus on them while trying to forget what it feels like to be loved and desired and touched and intimately connected to another human being. I mean, that's huge unto itself, and it's huge to somebody that is experiencing emotional upheaval on a constant basis just for anything in life. I mean, mm-hmm. hats off to you for doing that. You know, um, I was asked for the divorce. I didn't ask for it. And even though it was the hardest thing to hear, I knew we were having problems. The words were still very hard to hear. I also put myself in his place because a lovely man. I mean, I have nothing bad to say about my former husband. I thought, what must it have been like for him to think about what to say and to say it? What must that have been like? That was tough unto itself. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not the one asking for divorce, if you're being asked for it, it's not easy. For the person asking, nor for the person to hear it. It's hard all the way around. So no blame is necessary. I guess that's that's my point. And mm-hmm. your point too. Yeah, yeah. Unless there's something awful going on. Okay, then we can totally blame everything we want. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's an asterisk on that. <laughs> all right. I will I will stop working in absolutes. The fourth chapter, the last and fourth chapter, as we conclude. Chapter 33, The Crucible, title of the chapter. Quote from Rumi, uh, a Persian poet. Your task is not to seek love, 
but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself you have built against it. Is your interpretation that sometimes we can actually present ourselves in a way that we will not be able to get love? How do you, tell me your interpretation of this. Oh God, the barriers I had against letting love in, how do I count them? Um, I remember starting those, and those were so many bricks in my wall. I mean, this is part of recognizing what my walls were built out of, like over the years. And so many of those bricks were uh, shame and feeling unlovable, feeling broken, feeling um, terrified of abandonment. Because as a child, I didn't feel the love and connection and safety that, um, you know, that I ultimately would be looking for in a romantic relationship. And so I just protected myself against feeling it and potentially losing it. I didn't feel worthy of it. So I, I thought abandonment and being replaceable was just, was an absolute. And I'm going to, I'm going to speak from the last page in that chapter. Only through revealing your true self can you find true connection. Listen with courage when your soul cries for more and lean into the spaces that terrify you. I, I, I just can't tell you how important reading that was to me. This is so transformative. And it's a tool. You've just created a tool, Wendy, for people to use, not only if they feel that the marriage should transition out, um, but for any other scary situation, like getting another job. I mean, we're so dependent on our income. A lot of us don't make enough money to be able to live the way we want to live and save money. You know, most of us have to save money and live less and maybe look forward to retirement to do some of the things that we really can't do while we're saving money along the way. And so whether it's marriage or our careers, it takes such courage to follow your gut and to not know where the end of the tunnel is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What note to that? And that really, you know, that's where my journey shifted from an external journey to an internal journey. I was always navigating and doing it very well, my academics, my career, my, uh, my marriage. And it was sort of at that point when I made that leap of faith out of that marriage that I knew the journey was really um, internal and I needed to go to the scary spaces that I hadn't visited since I was five, you know, and really start doing that work. And I couldn't do that work within the marriage. And that's really what the work was before I met my second husband and then just that work just continued and continued. So, Wendy, how many years between the um, the conclusion of the divorce and when you met your current husband? Um, I think 
Well, the divorce wasn't final for probably a year and a half after we moved out and separated and, you know, just the legality of it all. So I would say about three or four years. Okay. And at that time, you had professionals helping you, guiding you, doing all of this very difficult work on yourself? No professionals. I'm I'm very, yeah, the therapy. I did have a therapist. Um, I shouldn't say that. We didn't do deep dive therapy, but she was like a good friend that I had, that she supported me. So, but it wasn't the anxiety therapy that I really needed at the time. Um, And, but I kept her because I was really comfortable with her. And I shied away from sharing my deep, dark secrets because I didn't really want to ruin the relationship. I really enjoyed her company. So, but okay. So help me navigate the, the grief of a divorce. Yeah. All right. So now I'm even more blown away that you did this yourself without uh, a mirror. You know, sometimes the therapist, the life coach, they're, they're the mirrors, you know, that we hold up so we could see our own self-reflection and, and they help us frame ourselves in the mirrors. But how did you do this on your own? Other than your one friend who kind of acted as a little bit of a sounding board, so to speak. Well, she was a therapist, but I was just characterizing her as more like, it was more like a friend and that's how I I felt around her. And so I was able to talk about it and have some, some sounding board. Um, But even when all of the therapy that I did, you know, in the book, all of that I did on my own, the exposure therapy and the the therapy that I did in meditation around reparenting and it just came naturally in some way. Like I always sort of had this whisper, like pushing me and telling me where I needed to go and what I needed to do. And it was just more than I had ever gotten out of therapy, traditional therapy, because I'm just not a a great patient because I, I don't, I've never been comfortable sharing all of those intrusive thoughts and talking about the anxiety and having it all come up in me again when I'm not necessarily prepared for it and then being just kind of dumped at the 50 minute mark and having to go back out into the world with my my box of awful secrets open and now you know the therapist is fine but I'm not like I had closed that box and kept it pretty tight for several weeks now, you know, and now I'm being asked to open it back up at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. Cause that's when they're available. And now I'm ruined for the next five days because I can't close the damn box again. Like I didn't. And so therapy doesn't make, it never made sense for me. Well, for those people who can't afford therapy, cause therapy is not cheap. You know, I I mean, I have a lot of friends who are therapists, obviously, because of the work I do. And I'm thinking, shoot, if I saw any one of you, it would have to be limited scope, to use (laughs) any language. It would have to be very limited scope because I can't afford anywhere from $125 an hour to $300 an hour. If you need a lot of therapy, Mm -hmm. you may have to take out a loan. Right. (laughs) It's very expensive, depending on A, the type of therapist who will either 
move you along faster or slower because not all therapists are built the same. Everybody Mm -hmm. has a different approach. But now I'm fascinated that with what you just said about you're a a tough client to have, you did enough work on yourself and your friend therapist was obviously good for you that when you met your current husband, you were able to present yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a different way. But just enough, I think. (laughs) Thinking of who I was 13 years ago versus who I am now is vastly different. And because that journey with him supporting me and uh, has, has been far more transformative than the four years I had between the first marriage and the second. But I had done enough work that I knew how to recognize what real love was going to look like and what a real relationship um, smelled like, you know, and he could, I, I offered him enough that he could see the same in me. So thank God for those four years. But there has been just a ton of, of work since then, which creates, you know, such strong bonds because we are growing together, unlike, um, you know, my first marriage, where we never even started that process. I'm going to finish our talk by uh, quoting the last three paragraphs um, from the final chapter that has to do with divorce. Mm-hmm. I also learned that when you find the person who is willing to meet you where you are, breaking down your walls does not expose you to heartbreak and abandonment. When you are met with this crucible, the metamorphosis fundamentally changes you. You believe in your worthiness and find self-love. For me, this meant two things. First, You become more attractive to everyone, not just physically, but on every level, because you now own your divine individuality. I I love that. Therefore, you are less likely to be abandoned or betrayed. And second, even if you are abandoned or betrayed, you now know that their actions expose who they are, not who you are. It becomes impossible to be broken by it. Will it be painful? Of course, but you are unattached to the result, not because you don't care, but because you know you will be okay no matter what happens. Ironically, falling in love with someone else gave me the ability to fall in love with myself. I was draped in a lightness of being, and I delighted in my unique qualities. These gifts were always within me, hidden by the stone that I could only remove when challenged by a longing so deep it became impossible to ignore. That's what true love can do. And I'm almost ready to cry. That was so moving because in the two times I was really moved by somebody, and I'm going to have you definitely have the last word, When I was moved by somebody, it felt freeing. I did not worry about being myself, saying what I thought, moving, you know, dancing, whatever I wanted to do, flirting. It didn't matter. I felt so comfortable in my own skin. This is what you're saying, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 
Right. The right relationship should smell like freedom, not like a job or a jail or um, uh, something that you're adorning your box with, you know, um, it's just so much, I feel like I can't really say it much better than I wrote it because I had more time to think about it then. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's so ironic. It's just that my, it was a paradigm shift for me. I had been holding on so tight and so terrified of revealing my true self that I had made myself replaceable because I was trying to be like everyone else. So in, you know, by definition, then you are replaceable versus stepping into your own authenticity, your own unique gifts. And as you do that, that is how you form self-love for yourself. And then it, it doesn't matter if you're abandoned. You just, it's not of concern anymore. And you're more attractive to everybody. So it's just, you know, the gifts just continue to come once you step into that true self. The beauty is in authenticity. I completely understand what you're saying. And I'll go back to Brene Brown because she really made a difference when I started listening to her. We are all afraid of authenticity. We are afraid of not all. I mean, those of us who are afraid of being our authentic selves are afraid of being rejected. But when we are with people, when we have committed to be authentic, I mean, not hurtful, nice authentic, but just mm-hmm. to be who we are, to say what we think, to live how we need to live, it doesn't matter what we physically look like. All of a sudden, we're beautiful. Mm-hmm. because we have that self-love, because self-love and authenticity are together. Mm-hmm. You can't have one without the other. Right, right. And rejection and, and um, failure, if we bu- put them both in the same bucket, to me now, that's another paradigm, sh- paradigm shift. They're so, like, I, I almost long for them, because then I know that's not, those aren't my people. That's not who I'm supposed to be with. Like, then I narrow it down and, oh, okay, then it's just these people. These are my people or this is where I'm supposed to be. Or it, it becomes freeing for me where if somebody's rejected me, then I, I don't have to waste my time there anymore. That makes sense. Okay, then I'm going to go be me over here. And so I can still breathe because if I'm with the person who may reject me, but I have to you know, be somebody I'm not around them to, to sustain that relationship, then I'm suffocating again, you know? And I think maybe anxiety has been a great metaphor for me too, because it's all about freedom is when you can breathe freely. And for me, it's always been about my breath and hyperventilating and feeling suffocated. And the words come, whether it's feeling that way, emotional or emotionally or physically, or so it's really been like a touch point for me, but if it's a relationship, if it's a job, whatever it may be, please reject me so that I know I don't have to waste my time anymore. Wendy, I really looked forward to having this interview with you. I I really did. I think what you have to say is so unbelievably important. And please, everybody, you have got to get this book, The Box, An Invitation to Freedom from Anxiety by Wendy Tamas Robbins. Not only is it one of the most beautifully written books I have ever read, but everything in it is so poignant. So I just read to you from four chapters of this book, but this entire book is like a novel. 
Wendy, do you have a blog? Do you, uh, I think you're starting a podcast. How can, can people get in touch with you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, my website is wendytamisrobbins.com. So it's T-A-M-I-S and two B's and Robbins. And everything's really housed there. The book is available there, both from local bookstores and the Amazons and the targets of the world. And then my blog is there. A lot of articles that I've written for periodicals, um, all of the podcasts that I've been on as a guest in the last year are also housed there. So a lot of wellness, mental health resources I also have my one-on-one coaching um, and my speaking. I do corporate wellness programs, a lot of programs for law firms because I am a full-time lawyer as well. That's all on the website too. And I am starting my podcast. We've already, I've already done several interviews and we're putting everything together now in pre-production. And so it's called the Perfectly Panicked Podcast and it's going to be dropping in March. The Perfectly Panicked Podcast couldn't be a better word. Wendy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. I really appreciated this. And um, I'm speaking for everybody listening because I can't imagine Mm. that you haven't opened everybody's world, opened their eyes uh, with everything you've had to say. So thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much. It was delightful. And thank all of you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. We try the best to bring you information that will help you have the most amicable divorce possible and to get you to a point to understand that this is a journey, it's a turning point, and it can be the best turning point in your lives. So thank you so much. Yet again, you can reach me through my email address, Judith, at theamicabledivorceexpert.com through the website. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 